so much, choir. We appreciate your hard work week in and week out. It's just, thank you. Beautiful. And it's perfect for what we're about to talk about. So, great job, Helen, picking that out. Um, will you pray with me? God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word, your good news will never disappear. Help us to hear with joy what you would say to us today, this sacred hour. In Christ's name, amen. So what is the secret to life? What's the formula? There are probably people in your life that you greatly adored and loved or that you kind of want to know, you know, you admire them. It might be a coworker or a grandparent Someone that's overcome a whole bunch, and uh, maybe you're like me. You just, you want to know. One time I asked my grandfather, who was, his name was Big Daddy. Big Daddy, how, I mean, been married for over 60 years. Give me your secret. And he said, trust and understanding. I said, I didn't trust her, and she didn't understand me. Um, <laughs> Now, what I got from that was this, that you better have a good sense of humor if you're going to play the long game in any relationship, let alone your marriage. And, of course, he was just playing. He loved her. She trusted him. And it was a great, it was a great marriage. I learned a lot from him. And I never wanted to waste a moment to, um, to ask him what he would do or what, you know, what he did and why he decided to do what he did. Dr. Jonas Salk, uh, decades ago, the guy that um, really developed the, the, the medicine that eradicated, started to eradicate polio, uh, he was going around uh, the country and he was speaking. He didn't, ca- he didn't uh, develop a patent. He could have gotten just incredibly rich, but he didn't. He felt like it belonged to the world and he was greatly admired for his work. Dr. Salk What is your secret to life? They asked him, one reporter in Chicago. He said, the secret to life, my secret to life, is that I want to die young as late as I can. That's pretty good. There's some wisdom there. Well, it wouldn't surprise any of us that people wanted to know about Jesus. He was just there at the end of his three-year ministry, and he was... Really, this is kind of a story about journeys, really. It's not just about the parable, but it's about sort of what brought up the parable. And there was um, a lawyer, a scholar, uh, and lawyers in those days would would know the, the Torah frontward and backward, and they were experts in the readings. Jesus, he said, interrupted him just outside of Jerusalem. How, uh, How can I inherit eternal life? What's your secret, Jesus? What's the secret to life? And Jesus, uh, like he did a lot, he never really directly answered a lot of questions. He said, well, what does it say, scholar? How do you read it? And uh, the guy quoted Deuteronomy and Leviticus, like I told the kids. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The lawyer added, he added mind to it. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Love your neighbor as yourself. Boom. What did Jesus say? You got it. 
I mean, that is the right answer. But it says in the Gospel of Luke, after this conversation, that, that this scholar wanted to justify himself. He, wanting to justify himself, he asked, okay, so like, who is my neighbor? And you know, I, I kind of thought that might be a good question to ask. Who, who is my neighbor? You know, do I have to help every single person? Like at the stoplight there on Meadowbrook, do I have to help every person that asks me to roll down my window? Do I, I mean, that's a tough question, right? Do I, I've got some things to do. Um, and so the lawyer was looking for what I think a lot of times we look for, and that is just a little punch list. Just give me, just tell me who I need to love and who I don't have to love, and then I can take it from here. And that sparks a story. A man went from a journey, on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked and robbed by thieves and robbers, and he was left to die on the road, Jesus said. And there was a, uh, a priest. Now, priests were high rankers. I mean, they, they had a lot of political clout and a lot of power in this world. But the priest had things to do, right? And it says, Jesus says in the gospel, that the priest saw him and kept on walking. And then Jesus said, a Levite. These would have been assistants to the priests. These were up-and-comers. And... Uh, and the, the Levite, too, looked and saw this man half dead, and he went on the other side of the road. Um, and, then, and then, finally, a Samaritan came. Now, as soon as Jesus said that word, he was in trouble. If he didn't think he was going to get crucified real soon, he was for sure going to do it. The Samaritan was a sworn enemy of Israel they were people who had, in, in, in the Jewish uh, folks' mind, they were people that, who turned their back on the Torah centuries before and, uh, and were adding all kinds of stuff to it. They were sort of similar, but not exactly the same. And they were certainly hated. But the Samaritan in Jesus' story is the hero. Is the hero. Um, so there's this wrinkle, and then finally Jesus finally says, Now, who in the story was the neighbor? And the lawyer couldn't even say the word Samaritan. Because he would have had to spit or do something, you know, after that. And so he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, do this, right? And you will live. Now, earlier, the lawyer is looking for the punch list. And how do I get to the finish line? Um, and he talks about eternal life. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You don't have to wait until you die. You've got it right now. You can make a decision today about it, right? This guy was looking for a checklist. And Jesus was sharing with him a way of life, a decision to be and to embody love. And then Jesus throws in this enmity, this this Samaritan. Um, you know, it's a shame today that we don't have enemies or people we don't disagree with. That this would really make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? No, it does. We're a world broken. 
and we set lines and we label people. Amy Jill Levine, who is, uh, is Jewish herself, she taught she, to help Christians better understand this. This is what she said. We should think of ourselves as the person in the ditch and ask, is there anyone from any group about whom we'd rather die than to acknowledge she offered help or he showed compassion? She goes on, more is there any group whose members might rather die than help us? If so, she says, then we have found our equivalent of the Samaritan. So what do we do with this story? Because this bothers me. I'd rather have my checklist. Just tell me who, what, where, and when, and I'll be on my way, Jesus. And he doesn't give that to me. Sometimes I feel like that lawyer. I'm in, I'm in a busy world, and I'm not sure I trust everybody. Tell me who I need to help and who I can pass by so I can move on in life. I was walking the dog this morning and a car broke down right beside where I, and I was like, you know, I've got a lot to do today. Wish I could help. And I walked on by. But it kind of made me feel better because the car wasn't broke down. She was doing some work or something. But I thought, this is just like God. This is just like God to make, force me to make a decision and have to practice what I preach. Flannery O'Connor said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. And Jesus is trying to make you and me and us odd. Odd people, odd family, odd church. People who just might slow down and get involved with a stranger or even an enemy's life. That is tough to do. It's not about a to-do list. This is not about who. Jesus says this is about what. What am I to do? And he describes this messy kind of love. Maybe, maybe the secret to this Jesus life is every day to wake up and just ask myself, God, help me to be ready for at least one interruption today in this life. Help me live the good life. Maybe, maybe today somebody might find in me a generous ear or to be generous in my time or money. Because that's what God has called us to be. Lawyers trying to work this out in his brain. And Jesus gives him an answer that works it out through his hands. And through his heart. And through his heart. Our heart. The good life. The eternal life is there for the taking every day. We can't do everything for everybody. But Christian, we can do one thing for somebody every day. We're called, and it will be the most surprising place, and it might be the most surprising person, but it's what we're called to do and to be. Last year, in one survey, said that 86% of Americans gave less than 2% of their income to anybody. Uh, oddly enough, it said the less you make in this country, the bigger percentage that you give away. Conversely, the more you make, the harder it is to give money away. I always thought to myself, man, when I make more money, then I can give more money away. But it gets harder and harder and harder. Now, the reasons they give in this article are pretty predictable, and you probably would know. The people who gave more and volunteered more and served more were people with a positive assessment of their own well-being and who had a strong sense of agency. The ones who didn't give... 
Their concern over their uncertainties of the world kept them tight-fisted and kept them from crossing the road. They knew they could do better, and they hoped one day they would, but they're just doing the best they can. Now, I don't want to lay a lot of guilt, heap, heap guilt on anybody here because I fail 99% of the time. What I want us to do is read this not out of a sense of guilt, but really in hope, right? We can, we can be that Samaritan. We can grow into that. We can live generous lives. It's possible. It's not only possible, but it's, it's, it's probable. It's going to happen. I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm not talking about punch lists. I'm talking about freedom and growth to let God bless this world through me, through you, through St. Luke's. On a TED Talk recently, a woman named Rachel Young, she was an American and she was in Bangladesh and she was teaching um, in a school there and every morning she would buy biscuits and uh, with some extra money, and she would walk out, and children, just like that, children would just swarm around her, and she would give biscuits away. She said one day she got really angry with the child because she gave this child a biscuit, and it was the last biscuit, and she was walking away, and the child grabbed her arm and pulled her and gave it back to her, and she thought, this is like, you're not grateful for this biscuit? Until the child turned partly around and she realized the child only had one arm and could not open the biscuit, open the wrapping. She said her immediate response was anger. Aren't you thankful? Is this not good enough for you? But then after she thought that, she saw that, she said, Lord, forgive me. She talked about two ways that maybe we can walk, look a little bit more like this this Samaritan, and that is, she talked about the holy pause of awareness. I mean, most of the time when I pass up somebody, it's not that I don't like them or hate them. It's that I just kind of stop caring or I'm too busy to care. The holy pause, expecting the interruption. Is there anybody here that when they make out their daily schedule, they put way too much and they, on their list? You know, allow for some wiggle room in your schedule. So that you might be able to use, be used by God. She, the, second, the second attribution to, for very generous people when she studied it after this experience, she said, is that the people that are most gracious are those who consider themselves lucky. Now, I probably wouldn't use the word lucky. I might use something else. But just, just bear me out on what she said because it makes sense to me. Much of who you are comes from luck. Where you were born, what your parents did or did not do. And when I think about that, that like part of, like if you want to call it blessing, part of my blessing is that I just happen to be born in the right latitude in this world, in longitude. I didn't pick my parents, what they did or where we lived. That gratitude can sometimes pour into a sense of, a purpose. So she said, a holy pause, and she said, consider yourself lucky. Or if you want to use theological word, consider yourself blessed. But let me add a third to that. Most generous people I know who do not ignore suffering around them, 
are people who've had a good experience in the ditch. And I've lived long enough to know that if you live long enough in your life, you will find your time in that ditch. Every single one of us have probably been in a ditch before where we needed somebody's help. We couldn't do it on our own. We didn't have the talent. We couldn't buy or fight our way out of it. We just had to hope and pray that somebody would come along, some Samaritan would come along and join us. The Paul's blessed experience in the ditch. Lynn Dole, a mom, tells a story of her 16-year-old daughter, Summer, who acted and who was kind of living the 16-year-old sort of world, that kind of drama and all the stuff that comes in, in teen- with teenagers, until a pain in her hip revealed that she had an advanced form of cancer. So she and her family, the whole family, Lynn, her daughter Summer, they just tumbled into a, a state of despair. They found their ditch, and with her hair falling out and little hope for long-term survival, Summer was panicking. Until, her mother said, when they were in a waiting room, waiting to get treatment to chemotherapy, and another girl, much younger, approached her and asked her if she could borrow her phone to play the game she was playing. Lynn, her mom, watched Summer's face and life transformed as her daughter watched young Sarah, bald herself, play with the phone. Shortly thereafter, mom wondered, who in the world is this child that I have now? Because her daughter Summer put together Team Summer, kids helping kids with cancer. And she would go on in the months and years to come that she was alive, raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to help give children with cancer toys so that they could be distracted, if only for a moment, those ditch moments. When things got physically unbearable for her daughter Sarah, she would exclaim, I need a kid. And they'd find someone in that hospital to gift with something to help another out. Generosity became Summer's lifeline. How much time do I have left? She would ask her mom. We don't know, said her, said her mom. But for the rest of her life, this is what she did. This is who Summer was. And this is how she died. Team Summer after her beautiful life became, you find a kid with cancer and you be a giver too if you've got cancer. Her mom continued Team Summer, more kids with cancer, raising money for other kids. It was amazing. It took off. Lynn said of the program that lived, uh, Lynn said of the program that lived beyond her daughter. She said, when I saw a child present a gift to another child with cancer, she said, I always looked in the face of the giver because that's where I saw my daughter Summer's face. You know what that good Samaritan was? He was free. He finally realized he could give of himself and he didn't have to worry that we all walk a dangerous journey and we all find our way to the ditch. And all we have to do, all we have to do is just get involved. Those holy interruptions. Question is not who is my neighbor. It's what kind of world do I live in 
Mike Dixon, a friend of mine from Hattiesburg, asked me, so Bruce, well, like, I, I, I read this text and I thought, if everybody did what I did, what kind of world would it be? You know, would the shopping carts make their way back to the, you know, even after a long walk? <laughs> what kind of church would I have if everybody did and said exactly what I did? I love that. This message is about hope. Don't read it fearful or worried that God's going to zap you because you didn't make a hundred on your mercy test. No, just keep going one foot after another. Keep going with Jesus as our God. Consider yourself blessed and lucky that you've got something to give. I know you do. Or you can make the other decision. Have I decided by default that no act of kindness or love will ever make a difference in a world that seems to be always in a ditch? That's the decision we have to make every single day. But we are so lucky. We're so blessed when we realize that Jesus, our Samaritan, saw us in the ditch, did not pass by, threw us on his horse and said, I'll pick up the tab from here. I'm reading a book called Living with the Monks by Jesse Etzler. He's a Navy SEAL and he talks about what it was like to live in this very secluded monastery in New York, only eight monks. They trained German shepherds up there in New York. And he talked about some of their meditations. He said one, well, early one morning, the monk looked at him and said, Jesse, most of us miss heaven by 18 inches. The distance between your head and your heart. And on some days, I do miss heaven by about 18 inches. But on the days that I do, it feels so fun to be odd and weird and free. Because I paused just enough to see that God wanted to bless someone through me. Fred Rogers, Presbyterian minister, wise sage, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. May it be true of St. Luke that when bad things happen, people say, look at those weird people at St. Luke. That's our calling. Do this, says Jesus, and you will live. Let us pray. Lord God, Help us to read uh, texts like this with hope. Help us to see the great invitation each and every day to start anew and again and to live life abundantly. Help us to know that life is risk. We can't avoid taking risks in life to help others. Give us the courage to be your hands, your feet, your heart so that we might find abundant life. Amen and amen. I invite us now as we close, uh, invite you to stand as we sing our closing song. Let us stand and sing.